Hello, thank you for joining me. I'm so excited that we have a chance to get into God's Word together. And so, oh, excuse me, I'm a little distracted. Miss Jennifer is so nice. She she brought me, she must have known I was going to be hungry before doing this. And so she brought me this lovely marshmallow. Ooh, it's cherry fake. But wait a second, I've got a decision to make. She said there'd be a couple more if I waited. Oh, but I'm hungry, so, ugh. Ugh, choices. You know, that's the C word. I hear parents a lot of times bringing it up. Make the right choice, Johnny, or after Johnny's not done the right thing. Sally, was that the right choice? Back in my day, it was not the C word. It was just kind of, Davey, you did wrong. But um, that, I think, is part of what I got out of today's lesson, is just the choices, the will, our heart. And so it's really an exciting chance to... Maybe learn a little bit more. Oh, okay. Focus a little bit more about God's word. Now, God's word is exciting. It's a bunch of stories, and yet we know all of these stories are true. They are God's heart telling us about himself. And uh, the other thing we know is that it is alive and active. Now, that doesn't mean it's like some kind of a spooky horror movie. No, it, God's word, his breathed word through the different authors is alive and active to change us. And so I'm looking forward to that happening today. And what I always do before I get into his word, I pray, asking for his help. So let's do that right now. Father, God in heaven, thank you for your word. Thank you that it's true. And thank you that uh, your Holy Spirit can help us to better understand. So please have your way. Teach me, teach us what you would have us learn. In Christ's name, amen. Okay, so we're in the book of Matthew, um, one of the Gospels in the New Testament, and it's uh, Matthew 22, verses 34 to the end of the chapter. And uh, it, you might remember, if you've been following this series, that Jesus had just answered one group of religious leaders, um, the Sadducees. Now, you would think religious leaders like elders and pastors, whoa, they are just doing what's right. Well, we've got a good group of folks here. But they're people too, and these particular people were jealous. And they weren't just asking for true answers, they were trying to trick him. So anyway, Jesus had just kind of silenced this one group, the Sadducees. Here come the Pharisees, it's their time to test him. And so it goes, hearing that Jesus had silenced the Sadducees, the Pharisees got together. One of them, an expert in the law, probably a lawyer, tested him with this question. Teacher! Which is the greatest commandment in the law? Jesus replied, Love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your mind. This is the first and greatest commandment. Whoa! He nailed the test. He aced it. And he emphasized love, which I don't think is just the feeling, but it's really this idea of be attached, um, believe, trust. But the second part is what really hit me strongest. I used to think with all your heart, mind, soul, other parts of scripture include strength. All right, that's just a bunch of things, synonyms, the same. It's just really love God, which is true. But I think each of those are separate concepts. Love the Lord your God with all your soul. Each one of us has an area of our heart, area of our life that God wants to come into but he is polite. And uh, 
many people don't ask them in, and that vacuum stays. Um, the mind is just our compilation of information, and a lot of knowledge is good. I had to get a lot of information before I asked Jesus into my soul. But the heart is the one I really want to get into. I think this is the part of us, the part of our brain where we make choices. It's where we have a will. We make our decisions. And so God is wanting us to align our will with his, and that's loving him. And, and the cool thing is Jesus had to struggle with that. I love it that Jesus fully God, but also fully man, like the night before he was crucified. He's in the garden talking to his father. Look, I don't know if I can do it because he's going to be crucified the next day. The pain, but also suffering and separation from his father was so unbearable. He, in different words, my words, he kind of said, let's go to plan B. Well, then he just as quickly put his will into place. He said, not my will, but your will be done. And so Jesus did it. He died on the cross to be a sacrifice, to pay the penalty of my sins and yours. And so Jesus was saying, align your heart to my heart. And uh, then he goes on and he says, also, there is a second most important command. It's like he's getting extra credit with these guys. He goes, love your neighbor as yourself. All the law and the prophets hang on these two commandments. Your neighbor is anybody close to you. And so he's telling him, telling us, that's the important thing to do. The rest, I don't have time to talk about. It's so cool. But basically, Jesus asks them questions. He starts to sort of say, well, who is this Messiah, the Christ, which is talking about himself. Um, and uh, they say, well, they get partial credit. They say, son of son of David. Well, Jesus was a relative of David, King David. But that's only partial credit. Jesus also is the son of God. And that would have been wonderful had they known that. But they didn't. And so they, um, I'm sorry. Oh, gosh, it's cherry flavor, too. Uh, anyway, <laughs> I, I, I really hope that you will align your heart, your will, to God. Because, um, you know, he will build up your heart to help you make decisions. Like to be able to cool the now and heat up the later. Waiting is so tough. And yet that's what he does. He builds up our hearts. And the cool thing is, if you don't know God, he's ready to come into your soul. I hope that you'll do that. Ask somebody how you'll be glad to just... It's the most important decision I ever made. But a cool decision I just made now is... I... Oh, thank you, Jennifer. I get my two extra. <laughs> and you know what? Um, as exciting as these are going to taste, I think I'm going to share it with my closest neighbor. That's my wife. Next to Jesus... Miss Maggie, she's the s'mores queen. She just loves her marshmallows. So I'm going to do what God told us to do, to love your neighbor as yourself. Thanks for joining me. God bless you. Well, Miss Maggie, I have one question. Did Mr. Dave share that marshmallow with you? <laughs> I bet he did. All right, let's pray together before we open God's word. God, I thank you so much that you alone have words of life. God, you know that I have no words that have the power to change anyone's heart. God, I can't do that. 
but your spirit can. And so we pray that he would come and abide with us as we open your word. We pray that he would make it living and active in our hearts and lives. God, that you would do your will in us during this time. Use me, Lord, for your glory and for our good. In Christ's name I pray. Amen. Have you ever experienced mistaken identity? So, you know, we all are home a little bit more now with this pandemic going on. We're probably watching a little bit more TV or movies. So recently, I started re-watching my favorite show of all time, Alias. If you know that show, you know that there's a main character, Sydney Bristow. She is a CIA agent. She is sent out on all kinds of cool and dangerous missions. She has a new costume, a new wig, and a new identity for every new mission. But her one job is the same, to deceive other people in order to complete her mission. And if you watch the show, you know she is really good at it. What we will be looking at in the passage today is a case of mistaken identity. But Jesus is not trying to deceive anyone. He was very clear about who he is. It's the religious leaders who mistook his identity. They did not understand his true identity. So let's start now with the first passage, the first part of this story. We're going to be in Matthew chapter 22, verses 34 to 40. If you brought your Bibles, you can read along with me or it'll also be on the screens. So hearing that Jesus had silenced the Sadducees, the Pharisees got together. And one of them, an expert in the law, tested him with this question. Teacher, what is the greatest commandment in the law? Jesus replied, love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your mind. This is the first and greatest commandment. And the second is like it. Love your neighbor as yourself. All the law and prophets hang on these two commandments. So if you remember over the past few weeks, this is not the first attack on Jesus. It's not even the second. Every group of religious and secular leaders had joined together to attack Jesus, thinking that they could trick and undermine him. And they didn't even see that they themselves were fulfilling the scriptures as they did this. In Psalm 2, we read, Why do the nations conspire and the peoples plot in vain? The kings of the earth take their stand and the rulers gather together against the Lord and his anointed one. Have you ever heard the phrase, the enemy of my enemy is my friend? The Sadducees, the Pharisees, and the Herodians had all joined forces to try to trip Jesus up. Isn't it ironic that these so-called experts in the law could not even see how the word of God, that they supposedly knew so well, was being fulfilled right in front of their very eyes? Their own attacks against Jesus were the fulfillment of Psalm 2. Have you ever heard someone tone-deaf sing? Now, I promise I'm not going to pick on tone-deaf people. They can't help it. Just listen for the illustration here. So, have you ever heard someone tone-deaf sing? It's obvious to everyone but the person that they're going through all the correct motions, 
but the notes they're singing are far from the intended ones. What was intended to be a beautiful melody has instead become a chaotic discord. I had a friend in high school who was tone deaf. She went to youth group with me. She was the most joyful and loud singer during our worship times. I loved her enthusiasm, but I'm going to be honest. It was hard for me to stand next to her during the worship times. Not only because of the discomfort to my ears, but it was also hard to follow the correct melody with her singing all kinds of crazy notes so loudly. In this passage, Jesus is talking to religious leaders who had become tone deaf. They were going through all the motions, but what they were producing was far from what God had intended when he gave the law. One of my favorite pastors, Albert Albert Tate, said this recently. Some of us can be tone deaf, but we still sing all day long. These are the people that carry their Bibles everywhere, but they don't love anywhere. So this begs the question, are you using the word of God as a weapon or as an invitation to grace? Jesus was addressing a spiritually tone-deaf group of leaders. They had stopped hearing the beautiful melody of God's grace, and they were actually harming and misleading God's people. They were using God's word as a weapon. And this is the very context that Jesus is speaking into when he asks that question that was posed to him, which is the greatest commandment of the law? Now, don't you love how Jesus always uses scripture when he's being attacked? He does this during his temptation in the wilderness, and he does it again here. When we're being attacked, friends, the safest place that we can run is back to God and to his word. This is what Jesus models for us here as he answers the question. And his answer includes two Old Testament passages. The first is from Deuteronomy 6.5. It says, love the Lord your God with all your heart and all your soul and all your strength. This passage is commonly referred to in Judaism as the Shema. The first verse of the Shema from the sixth chapter of Deuteronomy is among the best known in all of Jewish liturgy. Traditionally, it is recited with the hand placed over the eyes. Now, I asked a friend of mine who's a Jewish Christian What is the significance of a Jewish person placing their hand over their eyes when they say the Shema? She said it's a sign of respect and acknowledgement that God is wholly other, that he is holy in a way that we cannot comprehend. It's reminiscent of the scene in Isaiah chapter 6, where Isaiah encounters God in all his holiness. He's high and lifted up, and Isaiah responds, Woe is me. But what is so interesting about both the original verse in Deuteronomy and Jesus' quotation of it is that it says, love the Lord your God. Not worship the Lord your God, not revere the the Lord your God, but love. Jesus essentially calls these religious leaders tone deaf because they totally miss the point. 
God is after our obedience, yes. But he's after far more than that. He's after our hearts. He's after our love. Why? Because obedience without love is, as it says in 1 Corinthians 13, a clanging symbol. Or, in other words, tone deaf. Jesus roots our obedience here in love. He says we must start with love for God and then everything else will follow. So let's go back for a second to the Shema, to the hand covering the eyes. Don't you want a God who is both transcendent and imminent, a God who is high and exalted and yet near and tender? Don't you want a God who is absolutely unsearchable and yet also chooses to make himself known? Don't you want a God who calls himself a consuming fire and also calls himself our Abba Father? That's a God that I can love. That's a God that I can draw near to. That is a God that I want to worship. God is after our whole selves. One of my professors in seminary used to say that we need to filter our teaching through the paradigm of head heart, hands. What he meant by that is that we need to teach to the whole person, their thoughts, their affections, and their actions. That's what Jesus is saying. God is after your whole person, every bit of you. He wants you to love him in the ways that you think, the ways that you feel, and the ways that you act. So with that in mind, How are you doing at loving God? If you're discouraged right now, don't be. That is the beauty of grace. As we meet with God, as we increasingly know and love him, he begins to change us from the inside out. He begins to change our thoughts, change our affections, and change our actions. He begins to make us more like himself. But that's not where it stops. Because grace doesn't sit still. When I'm teaching kids, I tell them that grace is like dominoes. Do you remember dominoes from maybe when you were little? Once you hit one, the idea was that all of them, click, 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 followed. Grace cannot stop moving. When we experience God's grace, it must move through us to others. In these two commands that Jesus gives us, he draws a picture of the cross. The vertical line is loving God. The horizontal line is loving others. And he himself shows us best what this kind of love looks like on the cross. John Calvin, in his commentary on this passage, writes, For since every man is devoted to himself, there will never be true charity towards neighbors, Unless where the love of God reigns. So we must start with love of God in order to get to love for our neighbor. So here we move into the second Old Testament verse that Jesus quotes. It's found in Leviticus 19:18. Do not seek revenge or bear a grudge against one of your people, but love your neighbor as yourself. I am the Lord. In Luke 10, we find a similar telling of the same story from Matthew. 
In Luke, Jesus is additionally asked, And who is my neighbor? He responds by telling the story of the Good Samaritan. Do you remember it from Sunday school? So there was a man traveling, and he's intercepted by robbers. They beat him, they take everything he has, including his clothing, and they leave him for dead on the side of the road. Well, a religious religious leader passes, and he steps to the other side of the road and leaves him alone. Another religious leader passes, sees him in his distress, moves to the other side of the road, and keeps going. Finally, a Samaritan man, who was very looked down upon by the Jewish people, a Samaritan man comes along, he sees the man, he sees what distress he's in, he puts him on his own donkey and takes him to a nearby inn. He nurses him and helps him, and then he even pays the innkeeper to care for him until he's well. So, who is my neighbor? Who is your neighbor? Your neighbor is the person in the opposite political party. Your neighbor has the other stance about vaccines. Your neighbor is in another tax bracket. Your neighbor has a different view about global warming. Your neighbor's skin color is a different color than yours. Your neighbor is the widow, divorcee, or single person who you know is lonely during a pandemic. Your neighbor has special needs, a physical handicap, or mental illness. Your neighbor might not look like you, act like you, worship like you, think like you, legislate like you, eat like you, spend money like you, work like you, vote like you, or spend their leisure time like you. Jesus said, love them anyway. Bob Goff, in his book, Everybody Always, puts it this way. God wants me to love the ones I don't understand, to get to know their names, to invite them to do things with me, to go and find the ones that everyone has shunned and turned away, to see them as my neighbors, even if they are in totally different places. And you'll be able to spot those people who are becoming love because they want to bring, they want to build kingdoms, not castles. They fill their lives with people who don't look like them or act like them or even believe the same things as them. They treat them with love and respect and are more eager to learn from them than than to presume that they have something to teach. So, how are you doing at loving others? These two commands, loving God and loving others, are necessarily intertwined because All humans are made in the image of God. We cannot love God and hate his people. If you're like me, though, that is sometimes hard because people are sometimes hard. We get frustrated, annoyed, territorial, jealous, bitter, judgmental, just to name a few. But listen carefully. Here's the good news. What Jesus is doing here is he is laying out the gospel of grace. No human person can live up to either of these commands. We must have the spirit of God and the power of God to love God and to love like God. Are you struggling to love others or to love God? Of course you are. But it's not a matter of trying harder or just resigning and living in guilt. It's a matter of the spirit. We must walk in and depend on 
God's spirit. Years ago, one of my BSF leaders said something in a lecture that stayed with me. It's easier to live by a checklist than to live by faith. Those religious leaders sure loved their checklists. They lived by them, but they did not have faith. In Philippians 2-3, we're told, For God is working in you, giving you the desire and the power to do what pleases him. Do you see yet? You cannot do it. But Jesus can and did on your behalf. He perfectly fulfilled these two commands that all of God's other commands hinge on. He lived the life you couldn't live, and he died the death you couldn't die. That is the gospel. That's the good news. He was drawing a picture of the cross for God's people with these two commands. That's how we love God. That's how we love our neighbor. It begins and ends at the cross. So if you're struggling to love, go back to the cross. He will meet you there. But we're not done yet. We have a little bit more in this passage. So after all these questions and attacks, Jesus finally turns the tables and he asks the leaders a question of his own. We'll pick up in verse 41. While the Pharisees were gathered together, Jesus asked them, What do you think about the Messiah? Whose son is he? The son of David, they replied. And he said to them, How is it then that David, speaking by the Spirit, calls him Lord? For he says, The Lord said to my Lord, Sit at my right hand until I put your enemies under your feet. If then David calls him Lord, how can he be his son? No one could say a word in reply. And from that day on, no one dared ask him any more questions. So we've seen these leaders ask Jesus question after question after question. Are any of you question askers? I am. In fact, when I was little, I asked my mom so many questions that she finally just bought me a book of questions and answers. So I wouldn't have to pester her anymore. Now, of course, that's funny. But I want you to think about the questions that you ask God. Do you just want to know the answer or do you want to know God better? What is the purpose of your questions? Jesus knew the purpose of the religious leaders' questions when he asked them, What do you think about the Messiah? Whose son is he? Their answer seems accurate at first glance. The son of David. But Jesus sees their hearts, and so he digs deeper. How is it then that David, speaking by the Spirit, calls him Lord? For he says, The Lord says to my Lord, Sit at my right hand until I put your enemies under your feet. If then David calls him Lord, how can he be his son? Well, here's the argument that Jesus is making. In 2 Samuel 7:16, God makes a covenant with David. God promises him, your house and your kingdom will endure forever before me, and your throne will be established forever. Now, we know that this is not a literal promise because the kingdom that was tied to David's line had already ended. Israel had experienced war, captivity, 
centuries of silence, and now Roman rule. There was not a living descendant of David ruling anywhere. So because this can't be a literal promise, God is therefore referring to another kingdom. Jesus uses David's words in Psalm 110 to underscore his point. David says this, The Lord, which is Jehovah in Hebrew, says to my Lord, which is Adonai in Hebrew, sit at my right hand. Now we know, probably from Sunday school, that Jehovah is a name of God. Adonai can also be used of God, but it's mostly used as a human and sometimes angelic term, which acknowledges a person who has power or leadership over another person. So David, who's king, when he says these words, calls this future descendant of his Lord. Well, that's weird. Why would David call his son or grandson or distant descendant Lord? Why would David, who's led by the Spirit here, acknowledge this descendant's authority and position over him unless he was not merely talking about a human descendant? So he must mean more. Okay, if you're still tracking with me, you may be wondering how these two passages go together. Is anybody wondering that? Okay, so here's the point. Jesus must be the promised Messiah in order for him to have both the power and the authority to help us to love God and others. Otherwise, Jesus is just giving us impossible commands and by doing so condemning us. So Jesus here uses the word of God to prove his his divine identity. He does this because these leaders clearly don't know the word of God. And they also don't know the heart of God. Jesus proves that he is who he says he is. So, who is he to you? Jesus is asking you, what do you think about the Messiah? So going back to Alias, in the last season... There are these bad guys, and they find a way to clone Sydney. They make a double that looks just like her. But this double does not have good intentions. She wants to destroy Sydney and everyone close to her. She cannot stand to let Sydney win. Does that sound familiar? In this passage, we've seen a group of religious leaders who can't stand Jesus. Their jealousy refuses to acknowledge him as the son of God. They don't want him to win. But guess what? Grace wins, love wins, and God wins. Friends, the ground is level at the foot of the cross. Won't you meet him there? Today, tomorrow, and every day, let us be people who run back to the cross over and over That is how we grow in love for God and for others. Remember, grace moves. It cannot sit still.